morning. Welcome to Redeemer, Redeemer's Women's Bible Study. Um, it's a joy to be with you all this morning on this beautiful Tuesday. Um, we welcome you, if you're listening on a podcast or watching online, we welcome you into this space with us as well. Um, let me pray and we will just dive right into Mark 13. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for your word. Even when sometimes it might be hard or heavy and confusing, thank you that it still speaks life to us. Thank you that your word is our life and breath. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you this morning, that you might reveal yourself to us in a new way through this chapter, that we might see more of you and realize more about your kingdom. Lord, I pray that your presence would be thick in this space and that you would fill both this room and the rooms of those who are listening at another time. Lord, we just pray that all outside distractions would flee, that we might turn our hearts and minds to you. Lord, I pray that all anxiety, doubt, worry, fear, dread, boredom, monotony, that all those things would flee, that there wouldn't be any space for those in this room, that your light would fill this space, and just that we would be able to see you clearly. And so, Lord, I pray that I would disappear, that you would be made great, and that these words would be yours. Amen. Okay, so this morning, um, I have not been dreading, so to say, chapter 13, but it has been on my mind um, to teach it. And when I, um, I'm going to read you a quote about this chapter, just this is the first thing when I went to start studying chapter 13, this is the first thing that I read. So just so you know where we're going this morning. Um, and this is from my favorite commentary by Lane. Um, he says, in the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic, this is the first thing I read, there's no passage more problematic than the prophetic discourse of Jesus on the destruction of the temple in chapter 13. The questions posed by the form and content of this chapter and by its relationship to the gospel as a whole are complex and difficult and have been the occasion for extensive literature and conversation. So that was the first thing that I read about this chapter. I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so great. Um, and, and it really, Lane and others, they do explain it well. And um, it's actually, we're going to see even more of Mark's literary prowess in the way that he wrote this chapter. Um, it's one of those chapters where there, there's end times talk, apocalyptic talk, and sometimes we can get lost in those little details and start thinking, much like when you read Revelation, you just start, what is happening? What is, what is the word saying? And really and truly, there is a concise message here. Um, and so we are going to stay, keep following with the way that Mark has been taking us, leading us towards the cross throughout the, all of the gospel. Um, and go on from there. This is the longest uninterrupted course of private instruction recorded by Mark. So this is the longest speech that Jesus gives his disciples. 
And it's his only extended speech, without being interrupted, recorded by Mark. It's often called the Olivet Discourse because it's on the Mount of Olives. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. So the Olivet Discourse, it's a bridge between Jesus's public ministry and the culminating in conflicts. Remember chapters 11 and 12 were full of conflict with the spiritual authorities. So it's this bridge between his public ministry and then also the passion narrative. So the passion narrative starts next week where Jesus, with the Passover, where Jesus is anointed in Bethany and has Passover with his disciples and prays in the garden. So this chapter is between those two things. And so we see Jesus's instruction to us and to his disciples before, before he is on the, the straight path towards the cross. By placing this eschatological discourse, so he's talking about end times, what happens when we die, what happens when Jesus comes back. It's with recurring reference to the destruction of the temple. So the temple is the theme of this chapter, and we're going to see that ultimately what Jesus is saying when he's talking about the temple, he's speaking to what is going to happen to the people of God after he has been crucified and rises again. We're going to see what that does with our relationship. So the destruction of the temple is directly connected to his trial and execution. And Mark is going to point to us that the relationship exists between those two things. So, that, so as we go through this chapter, and we're going to, just like before, whenever we go through chapters, we're going to go verse by verse. But just know that we are, we are going to, we're working our way towards the conclusion that the destruction of the temple will be a judgment upon Jerusalem, upon the people of God, for what they do to his son. Um, this is a farewell discourse, so, which is a literary term where he is giving these last thoughts. So we have this longest speech from Jesus, and he is giving this last speech, this last lesson to his disciples, and he is warning them, he is going to push them towards push them towards this life that they are going to live once he's gone. Throughout verses 5 through 37, there are 19 imperative statements, meaning he's commanding them to do something. So the entire message is he is telling them to actively be doing something. So let's dive in. <clears throat> Excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, so remember he's all in all of chapter 12, there was conflict with the spiritual authorities. So as they're coming out of the temple, one of his disciples says to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus says to him, do you see these great buildings pointing to the temple? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so in this statement, you see this double negative. There will not be left here one stone that will not be thrown down. And this is saying that with absolute certainty. So that double negative, absolute certainty, that he is saying that this temple, these buildings will fall. Now this, so he, here they are, they're walking out of the temple and the disciple, some disciple says, look how beautiful this temple is. And in, and in truth, it was a beautiful, beautiful building. 
right? So this is, this is the temple that Herod built. It took 46 years to build. It had beautiful white stones. It was inlaid with gold. And they often called it the white, there was a white mountain with gold because it was up on, in Jerusalem, up on the holy hill. It was this beautiful, beautiful building, stone upon stone, right? And, and in fact, in Haggai, when, when, it was, when they were talking about rebuilding Jerusalem, they used that same phrase, stone upon stone, to build it. And so here Jesus is talking about the destruction, saying that stone upon stone will be on the ground. So it is the reversal, it is the reversal of, of the actual building of the temple. And this prophecy needs to be understood in the context of, of Jesus' earlier teaching on the temple. Remember in chapter 11 when he cleared the temple of the money changers, he cleared the, the court of the Gentiles because they were... They were ruining, they were making the temple unclean by, change, by selling things within the temple. And so he's continuing with that. He's speaking to a judgment that is going to pass by the temple being destroyed. It's this pronouncement of judgment on the temple. And in fact, he's citing in Jeremiah, 11, excuse me, Jeremiah 7. So in Jeremiah 7, God's judgment of Israel the connect, when, Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple, right? So he comes into Jerusalem, destroys the first temple. The destruction of that temple was directly connected to the judgment of Israel. It was a punishment for a rebellious Judah in the time of Jeremiah. You can find that in Jeremiah 7. So this disrespect of the temple authority in Jesus' day was calling for ultimately the judgment of of Israel, the judgment of the people who were taking care of the temple, the people of God, right? It would be judgment upon them. And surely in AD 70, we see Rome comes in. Rome comes in, they burn the city, and then Titus has the temple taken down stone by stone. Stone by stone. And so we see this prophecy actually does play out. The prophecy does play out. And so they're walking around, and he says that the temple's going to fall. The temple's going to fall. And then he goes out, and they leave the city. They leave the city, and he says, as they sit on the mountain olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they ask him privately, tell us, when will these things be? So he's, he's made this pronouncement that the temple is going to be demolished. And like, well, when is this going to happen? When will these things be accomplished? And Jesus begins to say to them, the beginning of the speech, see that no one leads you astray. No one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. There are, but the begin, these are, but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if we read this list, there are several times within world history where these, it seems as if all of these things are happening. So I like to know things. I like to know when things are going to happen. I like to be in the know just about my life and, and how things are going to play out. And so 
if you read literature like this, like if you read the parts of the Bible that talk about the things that are going to happen before the end, right? It's really easy to just cling to, oh, well, you know, people have like, we know that there are people leading Christians astray with false truths. We know that we know that that's happening. Wars and rumors of wars. We have a current war right now, but if we, you don't have to go very far back within modern culture and history. There's there's always wars, right? There were two world wars, and so depending on where you are in history, you could read this part of Mark and think oh, it's happening, right? This is the time. This is the time. But what we have to notice is what Jesus is saying to them in regard to these events. First he's saying, first he's saying, don't be led astray. But he's saying, do not be alarmed. Right? This, these things are going to happen. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And so throughout this chapter, he starts telling them things that are going to happen, but he keeps saying the end is not yet. And so this is where when we read these words, when we read them, we have to remember that we're living in this now and not yet tension. We're living between those two. The kingdom has come and is coming, right? But at, this, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is going to say, nobody knows. He doesn't even, like, only God knows when the end is here. And so in the meantime, do not be alarmed, right? We have the, the blessing and the gift that we are sitting in this room, and bombs aren't dropping on the border of Winston-Salem. They're not even dropping on the border of the U.S. anywhere, right? But there are people sitting in bomb shelters this morning, nighttime there probably, and bombs are dropping, not even like on the border, but on their city, right? And so this, like, but do not be alarmed. Like these things will happen, but don't be led astray and keep the faith. Um, these are the beginning of the birth pains. And we also have, you know, it's 2022, right? We have thousands of years of history where we realize that God's, kind, God's timing is not our timing, right? And he knew that Jesus was coming, right, from the beginning, but we were first told of it in Genesis 3. How much time went from Genesis 3 to the Gospels? How many lives were lived from Genesis to the New Testament? And how many lives have been lived from when Jesus rose again and ascended to heaven to 2022, right? And so we have, I often get lost in the, in the trees rather than the forest or forest for the trees, whatever way you want to say it. But when we read this, Jesus is calling us to listen faithfully, to listen faithfully, and just entrust that he is working and moving. And in verse 9, he says, but be on your guard. So then he starts speaking to their faith and what it's going to be like for them. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, and this is the key, to bear witness before them. 
And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So he's saying tribulation is going to happen. Wars will happen. You will be beaten. You'll be put in jail. But the main point, the main goal is that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. The gospel hadn't been proclaimed to all nations back then. And I dare say everyone hasn't heard it now. And when you're brought to trial and, deliver in the, and you're delivered over, do not be anxious beforehand. What are you to say? But say whatever is given to you in that hour. He's, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, the Lord will provide your words. Even before the courts, even before the authorities, the Lord is going to provide your words. But the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death over the gospel. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So can you imagine hearing this, right? Somebody speaking these words over your life. You're going to go to jail. You're going to get beaten. Your family's going to hate you. You might get killed, right? But trust that the Holy Spirit is going to provide for you. I need to speak this over like when I'm stressed out about getting everything done during the day. Trust that the Holy Spirit is going to give you the words and the wisdom to speak in everything that you need. And verses, remember in 12 and 13 when he's talking about brothers delivering brothers and parents and children hating each other. This is Jesus' own story. His own family, remember we talked about this way back in chapters 3 and 4, his own family thought he was crazy. His own family tried to stop his ministry because they were embarrassed, right? He was also disowned by his brothers. So he knows the this, this, this story of this tribulation. And truly in the next chapters, we're going to see him handed over to the councils, beaten in the, in the synagogues, standing before governors and kings, bearing witness to the gospel because he is the gospel, and he ultimately is killed for it. So he's speaking to, to, to the cost of discipleship here. And in verse 14, he goes on, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, so the abomination and desolation, this is talking about the destruction of the temple. So when you see Jerusalem destroyed, and remember how important the temple was to them, this is where they communed with God. If they didn't have the temple and it wasn't working, remember that was the whole problem in the Old Testament when the temple, the first temple was destroyed, they couldn't offer right sacrifices because they didn't have the temple system working. And if they couldn't offer sacrifices, then they couldn't be forgiven for their sins, so they couldn't be in right standing before God. Their entire relationship with God was wrapped up in that holy of holies within the temple. So truly saying that the temple was going to be destroyed was the destruction of their ability to be in communion with God. But that abomination, desolation, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
So in the in this imagery, most of the houses in Jerusalem and around it, they had flat roofs, right? And so they could have gardens up there or store things up on the tops of the houses. And so it's talking about someone just being up on his roof, right? And when this when this moment happens to not go down the stairs and go through the house to collect anything, literally jump off the roof and flee. Like we're talking about immediate, you need to get out now. Don't even go, like don't even bother with the stairs. Just jump off the roof and go. And with the, the one who is in the field, do not turn back to take his cloak. Often when they were working in the fields, they would wear cloaks, right? To help with the morning chill. And then they would store them. They would lay them in the corners of the fields while they would work. And so this is saying, don't even go back to the corner of the field. Wherever you are in the field, drop what you have in your hands and run to the mountains. This is serious, like the enemy is coming, get out now. The fire is about to consume the house, don't even grab a book, right? Just get out, get out, flee. And this terminology with flee, we've seen this before throughout the, it's, it's this, the, this idea of fleeing, to flee judgment. In Genesis 19, with um, the story of Lot, he is told to get up and flee. Do not even look back behind you. Escape with your life to the hills, right? Escape with your life. Flee to the mountains. We see it also in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Zechariah. Jerusalem is usually a safe haven, it's usually spoken of in a safe haven, but occasionally when we hear these words flee, it is always in regards to fleeing judgment. And this is where I love the, how connected all of scripture is, is that this word used for flee is the same word used in all of those other stories. Flee, you're fleeing judgment. Get out with your life that it might be spared. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might, may, might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been, been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So it's talking about this horrific, life-changing, history-changing event. Now, as, as for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing in AD 70, when Jerusalem was sacked, when it was destroyed, there was this siege around the city. And if you, if you didn't get out, like if you didn't leave, it's like the people who don't flee the evacuation order before a hurricane, at some point you're stuck there and no one, no one can help you, right? You're stuck on that barrier island because you didn't leave. So the people who didn't leave the city, they were stuck while the Roman army was encircling it and there was no food and there was no water, right? And the people starved to death within the city. Those who weren't burned, those who weren't wounded from battle, they starved. Children and women, and they ate horrific things trying to survive. Like it was a horrible, horrible picture of what humanity can do to other humans, right? It was a horrible moment in history. And, and he's saying, he's saying how bad it's going to be. Jesus knew that it was coming. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For those sake of the elect for whom he chose, he shortened the days. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. I'm telling you these things so that you know that they're going to happen, so that when they happen, you remember my words. Now, this is one of those chapters where is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about the second coming at the end of time? Right. We can all like in these types of passages, we can we can wrestle with that. Right. And often, often in prophecy. Right. Throughout the Old Testament, there would be a an immediate fulfillment, but it wasn't a complete fulfillment. Right. There would be an immediate fulfillment of a prophecy, but then the the full fulfillment. Right would not have happened yet. And a lot of them haven't happened yet because they are talking about this second coming. They're talking about this end times, beautiful fulfillment of a prophecy, right? And so what does this section mean? Well, we know because we're on this side of history that Jerusalem was destroyed and the things that he warned about did happen, right? And, And so then you really, like we have to look at how Mark has written it, right? And I would say that, and I believe that Jesus, when he's talking and he's telling them to flee to the mountains, he is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem mostly. Because we know from Revelation, in Revelation 6, um, Revelation 6, 15, it's talking about the, the end and the judgment of all. In 6.15, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? The reality is, is that no one can flee the final judgment of God, right? So when Jesus is saying flee to the mountains, he's saying flee to the mountains to escape from Rome because it's about to get real bad in Jerusalem. But the reality is, is that there will be a day when even if you do flee to the mountains, you will not be able to escape the wrath of God, right? So Jesus, in this beautiful chapter, there is this imagery of end times, but at the same time, he's also speaking to something very concrete, right? This this deep truth that because of the judgment that was going to fall in Israel, no, like you need to get out, escape the Romans, escape the Romans because the judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem. And in this, we see his kind, there's a kindness in that. He was warning them. There's a grace in that, right? There was a grace when Lot was told to get up and leave, right? Don't look back. There's this grace in, in escaping, allowing, allowing the elect, allowing those who, who believe to escape the wrath of God and the wrath here of, of the Romans. So then it turns in verse 24, it says, But in those days, in those days after that tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then, then the turn, this, this language and, and this imagery does turn, right, to the end of times. But here we see in chapter 13, this judgment upon Jerusalem. It's going to mark the passing of an era and the establishment of another, right? So for all of, of Old Testament time, like the temple had been the place to worship God, that had been their place to be in communion with God through the Holy of Holies. But it's the passing of one era and the establishment of another in which the glory of God is no longer concentrated in the temple, but in the Son of Man, right? Right? So because of, because of that, because of what Jesus is going to do, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is not just going to be in the Holy of Holies, but when we receive the Holy Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit fills the Lord's people, right, because we, our bodies are not our own, but they are temples of the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did. It was always part of the planet, but it, it was never going to only be in the temple. And surely when the temple is spoken about in Revelation, in the great city with the golden streets, in the city that the gates never close and the sun never sets because there is no sun because God is the light, there's actually no temple because God is there because we're in communion with him. We are dwelling with him, right? And isn't that the whole point of the whole story? That we might dwell with our God. They will be my people and I will be their God and I will dwell with them. So the words in the Old Testament and it's spoken all throughout scripture and fulfilled ultimately in Revelation. But here we see Jesus, he's saying, this is the end of that era, right? The temporal is going to be destroyed. And then my presence will be with you always. And from the, in verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so here in these sentences, he's going back and forth, but he's saying that watch for the things I'm saying are going to happen because they're going to happen in your lifetime. Now here he's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. He's speaking of the end of that era. He's speaking of, of the fact that the curtain in the temple is going to be torn wide open and there will no longer be a divide between God and his people. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my words. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So he's going back, he's answering that question. How are we going to know when it's going to happen? He says, no one knows. Only God knows. But then he says, but be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And so this is his message for his disciples. But then what I say to you, I say, he's saying to all of us in your faith, stay awake. Nobody knows when it's going to happen, right? And so we need to live lives as if it's going to happen today or tomorrow. And if it was going to happen tomorrow, how would I live my faith differently? If the whole goal is that all nations know his name and proclaim his name, then how am I living my life in order to point to that? Right? Sometimes the lives we live are, are the only gospels people see or hear. And so how, what am I doing each day that pushes the kingdom forward? Right? And where in my life am I sleeping not living out my faith? Where have I become lazy? Right? And we're going to see, and I love the way that Mark writes because... In chapter 14, we're going to see the disciples, after he's given this amazing speech, stay awake, stay awake, they can't help but fall asleep in the garden, right? He keeps coming, are you still asleep? Right? And so they didn't quite get the message, but at some point Mark remembers because he wrote this gospel for us. And so, so this week, as we, as we move into the Passion narrative, right, as we move into chapter 14 and the Passover and we're going to see Jesus go through the Passover with, with his disciples. How can we, as we move closer to Easter, how can we stay awake more in our lives? And, and also, too, like to live in that tension of the now and not yet, right? And to live with it in hope, faithfully expecting him to work, even when it seems like all the stones are dropping. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your good, good word to us. I pray that you would help us to understand that we, that we would just trust you and know that you are always working and moving. Lord, I pray that you would bless my friends in their study of your word, that they would know you more and know themselves more. Thank you for the sweet community that we have. Lord, I pray that you would bless their homes and their families and that you would be with us in our going out and our coming in and that you would bring us all back again next week. Amen. Thank you, ladies.